do it now as together we stand and as we sing. Our scripture reading tonight will be from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. If you would open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, we'll be there for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 15, and then after that, we'll move to Matthew chapter 27. But as you're turning there, I want you to think about the fact that the burial of Christ is something maybe we don't talk about quite as often. The tomb itself, something we don't talk about quite as often. But as you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse number 1, Paul says, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. So here's the gospel. It's by which this gospel you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I have delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and verse number five that he was seen by Cephas then by the twelve and so on and so forth but it's very interesting to think about as some have pointed out that the gospel is sometimes said that it has three pillars that hold up the gospel itself it has three pillars and the three pillars are the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus here we see that in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through uh, 5 and following. But as we said, sometimes we spend a lot of time thinking about the death of Jesus and what he endured and went through on the cross. And we certainly spend a lot of time thinking about what took place with his resurrection. But maybe we don't spend quite as much time thinking about his burial, the time in the tomb I'm not sure why that is. I think maybe it's because we like to get to, we already know the end of the story. We've heard it from our youth or what, maybe even if we didn't grow up being, uh, going to Bible class, maybe we've just heard it from our friends or, or people of the world that, that Jesus supposedly raised from the dead. And so we just know, we, we skip over that section we, that Jesus was buried and we get right to the point of the fact that he was raised. But I think there is some validity and good, goodness to spend some time thinking about for our lesson this evening, two, uh, two parts with regard to the burial. I want us to first consider the fact that there is some apologetic significance 
in regards to why the burial and the, the events surrounding it is important. And then we'll later talk about the second half of the lesson, some spiritual or theological significance with regard to the burial. As we said, I'm not sure why, maybe it is we, we skip over the burial part, but maybe it's because we just don't like to think about the death or tombs in general. We, especially in our culture, the, 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 that which surrounds the grave and, and the dead and, and skeletons and things of that nature, we just, we just don't like it. In fact, I was trying to think of, of anything that might be positive associated with, with a tomb, and the only thing that came to mind was a story that my father, a preacher, told about a couple of preacher's kids at the side of a grave uh, in which those preacher's kids decided to jump in the grave. And to make matters worse, when the preacher tried to get his sons to come up out of the grave, they ran to the other side of the grave. That was not me and my brother. Just because I said it was a couple of preacher's kids, it was someone else. But he told that story, my dad did. It was a true story. That's the only thing I can think of with regard to, to something positive, as we might think of it, with regard to graves and tombs of, of that nature. But I think there is actually, as we said, a lot of warrant to spending time thinking about the burial of Jesus. So let's do that this evening. First and foremost, let's consider Christ's burial from an apologetic approach and think about its significance from an apologetic approach. What we mean by apologetic is to give a defense for and, to, and it almost a, a proof or a reason for believing something. That is to say, the burial is not just recorded for us just for the sake of recording history, just, oh, it was written down so that we, uh, you know, it, it's a filler on a page, but rather that it actually gives credence to and is significant for what we'll consider later on with regard to the resurrection. Consider that if you're writing a fictional narrative, and, and it's not true, if you're writing something that is untrue, and, and maybe if these individuals were writing these things down just as a story for the sake of entertainment, why would they include specific details that could out their story as false? Why would they include specific details such as the tomb of Jesus that could inevitably be used against them as reason to suggest that the ones writing these things down were not telling the truth? The Bible includes very precise details about the burial. In fact, compare this to what we said a moment ago about the fact that we spend a lot of time thinking about the death of Jesus, but there's only in the book account of Matthew, if you'll turn there to Matthew 27 and 28, just a couple of verses that really speak at all about what actually happens at the death of Jesus. Look, uh, chapter 27, verse number 26. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Not much said there. Of course, there's, you go on there and he's put on the cross. And then verse 35, then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots. There's just not a whole lot of detail. I understand there's, there's things going on there with the robe and the crown and things of that nature. But as far as all of the details, I understand there's, there's it's talked about the fact that his side was pierced in other places and such, but, but there's not a whole lot of detail given there. But there are some precise details that are given about the tomb, specifically the precise location. Consider that with regard to Christ's tomb, it was known who the tomb belonged to, and it was recorded for us. Look at the end of chapter 27 and verses 57 through 60. Read this with me. This was from our reading this week, which, I want, which is why I wanted us to spend time thinking about these things tonight. 
Verse 57. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Consider that it was known who the tomb belonged to. Now that's important. Why? Because it might be said that there is a paper trail here of some sort. It's clear that this was a known tomb, and it was known who this tomb belonged to. As we said, it belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. I don't know how in that day it was recorded, like some sort of, of title, or as it is today, you buy a burial plot. It's kind of interesting, kind of funny in a way to think about the fact that we buy a piece of land to put our body. But, but regardless, it was the fact that Joseph of Arimathea had laid claim to this spot. It belonged to him and people knew that. And maybe it was the case that in that region, among those people, that, that people knew how to find out how, who that tomb actually belonged to. And do you think that it was likely the case that when Jesus was claimed to have been resurrected, that there were some contemporaries of that day who would have liked to test this claim and would have maybe been like Lee Strobel, someone who was a former uh, detective of sorts, who investigated the claims from his position uh, of his work. And maybe somebody in that day would have taken the steps to have done something similar to what Lee Strobel did and gone to find out, maybe from a law enforcement official perspective, to find out who was the owner of the tomb that Jesus was buried in. Let's find out where he was buried. And so it is significant from an apologetic standpoint that Jesus was buried in a known tomb. That is to say he was buried in a tomb that was owned by someone and it could be traced back to him through some sort of paper trail, if you will. But secondly, consider that not only was it known who the tomb belonged to, but it was a tomb that others had gone to. It was a tomb that others had gone to. Look at verse number 61. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Okay, so we have women who had gone to the tomb and could maybe perhaps go back there and tell you how to get there. But not only followers of Jesus, but even those that were not followers of Jesus, specifically, as we'll talk about more here in just a little bit, the guards who were placed there, the soldiers who were placed there. Do you not think that had they been there once before, they could go back again to show you where it was? Look at verse 66. So they went, that is the soldiers, and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now one other account we have, not in the book of Matthew, but in the book of John, you remember? Who else went with Joseph of Arimathea to the burial site of Jesus? Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee of the Jews. Now, it seems that, in my estimation, I, I like to believe that, that, that Nicodemus became a follower of Jesus, a disciple of his. And so it could be alleged, well, he's just another follower of Jesus. But it would also be said that he, formerly a Pharisee, someone who had very close ties to those of the Jews. And so you have a woman, or a couple of women, at least a couple here listed in Matthew 27, you have the soldiers. You also have Nicodemus. 
number of people who could take you back to the place in which Jesus was buried. It was a tomb that others had gone to. But then consider third, it was a tomb that could be returned to. As we said, others had gone there and they could return to, but it was a tomb that hadn't been destroyed. It was hewn out of the side of, uh, of a rock or, or mountain or hillside. It was, uh, look at verse number 60, it laid in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb. This is important. This is significant because it could have been alleged by those that were skeptics that Jesus, well, maybe if he was just buried in a shallow grave, maybe just covered some dirt on top of him, some, some just light rocks, that maybe some scavengers came along. And, and, you know, in the day and age in which we live, we're so separated from scavengers and varmints especially those of us that live in town, right? We're just, we're separated from that. We don't really think about the possibility of that, but I'm part of a, of a hunting group in the local area here that goes up to Sam Houston National Forest, a, a Facebook group, they, and I, was, I saw a post of somebody who said that they shot a deer and within a, an hour, they just, you know, they shot the deer, let it go, lay down uh, to die so that they wouldn't push it, blood trail. If you're a hunter, you understand what I'm talking about. But in, within that hour, a group of hogs had come and completely eaten up that deer while it was laying there dead. Scavengers, it's a real thing, even in this day and age. But you think about in that day and age, where perhaps even more of a rural environment, not so cityfied, if you want to say it that way, that scavengers could have very well been blamed to be the individuals that could have dug up a shallow grave. But no, Jesus was placed into a grave that was cut into a rock and it was covered up by another rock. It's significant. Consider alternatively, if Jesus had not been crucified and buried in a tomb, what if he would just have been burned at the stake? Okay, well, then it could have just been alleged, well, you're just saying he, he was raised because he was burned. There's nothing, you know, from a, from a uh, you know, reputable standpoint that could be said that he, he was raised from the dead. You're, you're just making things up. But no, you could go, here's the key. You could go to the very place Jesus had been buried, the tomb that he had been buried in. So from an apologetic standpoint, this is crucial, it's significant, it's important, but now add into this another layer. This is key. If the apostles were trying to mastermind some sort of corrupt scheme, some fictional narrative, why would they proclaim his resurrection so close to the place that Jesus had died later on? Think about it this way. If they weren't telling the truth, they would have known that someone could have very easily said, let's, let's go take a field trip to this tomb. Let's open the tomb up and let's just go ahead and look and see. You know Jesus is in there. But they were bold enough, these apostles were, the, the disciples were. They were brave enough, they were confident enough to go ahead and continue to proclaim that Jesus had been resurrected despite the fact that they were right there in that same city, that same territory that Jesus had died and had been buried. In fact, turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, we can actually prove that they might have done this. Some people in that day might have done this. In Acts chapter 2, we have the first gospel sermon being preached on the day of Pentecost, and Peter, in his sermon, actually references the tomb of David, which would have been in that very area. Acts chapter 2, verse number 24 Speaking of Jesus, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. 
Now he goes on to talk about David in verses 25 through 28. But then in verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb, now notice, is with us to this day. It's with us to this day. Continue reading. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in the Hadean realm or Sheol, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. The point is, the reason why we continue reading to verse 32 is Peter's talking about the fact that Jesus had been raised. And in the middle of that section of him being raised, he talks about David, David being dead, David still being in this tomb. And here's the big point. Here's what he's trying to say. We could go over to David's tomb. You and I, hey, come on, let's take a field trip over to David's tomb. And let's see David's tomb. It's still there and he's still in it. But Jesus, his tomb is empty. The fact that it could be returned to and to be found empty is significant. If you're going to start a movement based on stories and not facts, wouldn't you go somewhere in a far distant country to do that? Because very easily it could have been said by the Jews or the Romans of that day, no, no, no. You're saying this Jesus raised. Come on, let's go over to his tomb. Remember Joseph of Arimathea? It was his tomb. We know exactly where it was. Mary Magdalene, Nicodemus can take us there. The soldiers, they can take us there. Let's go see it. No. The tomb was empty. And they were bold enough, the apostles were, the disciples were, to proclaim that his tomb was empty right there in that city. That's significant. It's important from an apologetic standpoint. Then consider finally under this apologetic heading that it was a tomb others could be put into. That is to say, it remained empty. Jesus didn't go back there. And because it was empty, others could be put into it And because of that, an explanation had to be given for why others could be put into it. And the explanation had to be given by those who were supposed to be guarding that tomb. Why do the Romans and the chief priests and the elders go to such great lengths to cover up the fact that the tomb was empty? Read with me uh, in verse number 62 of Matthew 27, going back to that text. On the next day... Which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise up. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. This isn't in here by accident. It's important from an apologetic faith building standpoint for us today to know that it was not possible that the apostles could have come and stolen the body. There was a guard put there and there was a story that was inconsistent, turn the page as you, if, as you might in my Bible, to verses 11 through 15 a great length that has gone to to cover it up. So the plan was the Jews came to Pilate. They said, uh, let, let's, let's uh, place a guard there. And he says, 
he, he predicted or he suggested that he was going to be able to be risen from the dead. Uh, but surely this was going to be his disciples that were going to come and steal it. So let's make sure that doesn't happen. And so Pilate had reason to go along with it, right? Because he doesn't want any more rousings about this Jesus of Nazareth. And so, yeah, go and make it, the operative word here, as secure as you can. But then there's the cover-up, verses 11 through 15 of chapter 28. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. You see this kind of thing in the movies all the time, right? In real life all the time. We won't navigate into the political sphere, but when someone does something wrong or when someone's in trouble, people pay others off. In this case, the chief priests, the elders, and ultimately the soldiers, they were in trouble. Chief priests and, and soldiers, they were, uh, the chief priests and elders, they were in trouble of, of uh, being proven wrong, of losing their place of status. The soldiers were in trouble of losing their job, perhaps even their life for not holding to their uh, duty or responsibility of guarding the tomb. And so money is thrown at the problem. But we see that an inconsistent account is given. Their story is to say that the disciples came and stole them away at night. Sure, okay. You know, a bunch of fishermen and a tax collector. Yeah, one zealot in the crowd. They were able to overthrow you. They were able to overthrow this guard that was made as, uh, making the tomb as secure as they possibly could. Fat chance. You know, you think about it this as well. Peter, apparently he was too cowardly, at least early on before Jesus' death, to own up to the fact that he was a follower of him. And now you're telling me that he went at night? He and his buddies went at night after they had scattered against some soldiers? No. The story doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. He predicted it. He didn't need a prophet of God to raise him from the dead, as we'll talk about here in the moment. Jesus predicted that this would happen, and the cover-up is not sufficient to try to wash it away. And so let's talk about, very quickly, some theological significance or spiritual significance. The first half of our lesson, I think just if you're looking at your watch, it was more than half, Okay. We'll go a little bit quicker on this part. But we do want to make sure that we emphasize some spiritual significance to the burial because we understand there is some spiritual significance to the death. There's spiritual significance to the resurrection. But think about the spiritual significance, the theological significance of the burial. Number one, consider that it is testimony of the humanity of Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 27, it is appointed once for men to die, and after that, the judgment this wasn't some smoke and mirrors trick. Christ shared in every human experience that we all end up experiencing. It's testimony to the humanity of Christ. But consider next, it's testimony of the true death of Christ. One writer put it this way. I suggest that the reason the burial is an important step even beyond death 
is that burial puts the deceased person out of this world permanently, as we might think of, at least in the world that we are aware of and can see and perceive. He says, a corpse is dead to life, yes, but there is a sense in which it can still be said to be in life, that is, in our presence among the living, as long as it is around. But when it is placed in the ground and covered with earth, or in the case of Jesus, the stone, it is removed from the sphere of this life permanently. It is gone. And as we might suggest, we're not going to go down the rabbit trail of what's sometimes considered to be controversial about how exactly many days Jesus was in the tomb and all of that. If you're interested, I think there's, there's warrant and, and validity to studying that. And, and I'll be happy to point you in the direction of some resources because it, it is a little bit uh, tedious to kind of dig through some of that. But Jesus was in the tomb, not just for a couple of hours. He was in there for a number of days. It's kind of like Jesus in John chapter 11 when he waited a little while before he went to Lazarus to the point that Lazarus was stinking. You remember what it said there? Jesus was in there long enough not to just be like those, you know, in the middle, medieval ages uh, that had to, they had to start putting the bells attached to a string down into the grave, into the coffin, because there were some that they found claw marks inside of the coffin. Apparently they'd been buried alive. They thought they were dead, but they weren't really. It's a true story. Jesus had been there, he had died, and was in the tomb for a good amount of time. And we say all of that because this burial is important to attest to the power that Jesus had. As we said, Jesus predicted it. He didn't need a prophet of God to raise him from the dead like Jesus had done for Lazarus or Elijah had done for other individuals. This wasn't the first resurrection, okay? But it was the first resurrection of which the one who had died raised himself. And that attests to who Jesus is. Yes, it is said in other scriptures that God raised him from the dead. And Peter talks about that in his sermon. Another scripture talks about the fact that the spirit raised him as well. But Jesus also is said to, as he predicted himself, to have raised himself, John chapter two, verse number 19. But he doesn't, here's the key, doesn't remain in Sheol, Psalm 16, verse number 10. And as he said to the thief next to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise, suggesting that he went into the Hadean realm, the realm of the dead, not to hell as sometimes it was mis mistranslated and is, and is misconstrued by certain creeds, okay? But Jesus went to the realm of the dead. He was that dead, in other words. There's some theological significance here that as we think about that, Jesus overcame death and that suggests and proves and is important to remember with regard to, as we think about next, that his burial is testimony of the propitiatory demands that were met. Okay, we don't use that word very often. Propitiation is simply the appeasement of the wrath of the gods, as it were, in the pagan world. Okay, just to mean, in other words, a, a sacrifice that was offered to appease the wrath of the gods. Jesus' propitiatory work, Romans chapter 3, verse 25, was that God's wrath was appeased. That is to say, he was really dead. Jesus really died. He really was buried. It wasn't some smoke and mirrors thing. It wasn't just a trick thing. It actually happened. And because he truly died, it confirms that God's wrath was appeased and the sacrifice has actually been made on our behalf and that we have hope, which connects us to our final thought. That Christ's burial is testimony of the meaning and seriousness of baptism. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, 
Paul talks about the fact that those of us that are buried with him in baptism are buried into his death. Christ's death and his burial were very important and so also is our burial in the water grave of baptism, which represents and signifies being raised to walk in newness of life. That's what he goes on to talk about there in Romans chapter 6. So don't just skip over the burial part of Jesus because you're going through the reenactment of what he has done. That is to say, he was buried and he rose again. So you and I, when we are buried into the water grave of baptism... The old man of sin is dead. It's like we are crucified, just as Jesus was. The old man of sin is dead and crucified. We are buried, and that is supposed to remain there, the old man, to raise up, to walk in newness of life. And so, the question for us this evening, have you been buried with Christ? The burial is important from an apologetic standpoint, but especially a spiritual standpoint. Do you want to be buried with Christ tonight? If you will be buried with him, you can be raised that new creature and you can have hope of resurrection in eternity. You think about the resurrection, we've talked about how it's important. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 tells us that Jesus and his resurrection are the first fruits That is to say that just like Jesus was buried and raised, so too also you and I can be buried and raised spiritually, but also literally. That is to say that we can go to be raised up out of the grave. That is to say we get to go to heaven to be with him. But only if you have spiritually been buried in the watery grave of baptism can you find the hope of eternal life in heaven with him 